0: you're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowde. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you will take your Bible tonight and turn to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 tonight, and we are beginning a new series this evening looking at marital commitment, and uh, I'll assume that all the guys are here um, because your wife needs to hear this series, and uh, actually it's probably the other way around, but uh, that's all right. Matthew chapter 6 tonight, we're going to begin in verse 10 in just a moment, and uh, just wanted to give God glory for what he's doing. We had... uh, we had almost 30 folks in our starting point luncheon today as far as 30 that were new to us or newer to us and so some of you were a part of that we're honored that you were with us this afternoon and looking forward to what god has for us tonight and i think pastor nathan said i think we have uh six adults signed up for our small groups which is the most we've ever had and so that's really exciting uh and that uh, we have five uh, groups that'll be three on wednesday and two on sunday and the group that i'm leading on sunday i think we have 20 and so we're gonna have to creatively figure out how to navigate that and uh, that's a good problem to have but uh, we're excited about what god's doing if you know of any young adults uh, brother ethan and miss crystal uh, are leading a small group on sunday morning Uh, if you know of some that would, and that's kind of a vague term but young marrieds college career age uh, but encourage them to be a part of that group and to help us spread the word on that i think we have about eight or nine in that group right now but love to see that roster filled up and appreciate your partnership in that Matthew chapter 6 tonight, you can remain seated, but let's verse 10 down through verse 12, and specifically we're going to hone in on verse 12 uh, as we look at the first commitment this evening. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. So this is Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And then in verse 12, we find um, these key words, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so as you see in your bulletin there, and I had some of the subpoints even included tonight because I want to make sure you get the meat of our study. We're looking at tonight the first in this series we've called The Vow, a study on marital commitments. In a moment, I'll give you kind of the backstory of this series, what God used to lay on my heart over these early weeks into the fall season. But the first commitment we're going to look at tonight is this, and each of these will be a statement. Um, the first commitment is this, which sounds easy to say, but is hard to live. It is this, we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle, it's a key word, a regular lifestyle of confession and a lifestyle of regular forgiveness. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. We need His help tonight on this. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this day. Our hearts are full already with what you've done. And to thank you for these dear folks and their sweet spirit and desire to grow and change them. Lord, of all the relationships that we need your help on, it is this one that we're about to study tonight. And Lord, this impacts each of us differently. Not all of us are married tonight. Not all of us have a unique relationship. Either we used to or we would love to someday, or we may want to revisit that at some time in the future. But Lord, these skills are key to any relationship. I pray you would make the application in each of our hearts where needed. Some are widows and widowers tonight, and, and this hits us in each in a little different way. But I pray especially for those who are married tonight, with or without their spouse in the service tonight, I pray that you would help us to see this principle and where we can apply it, and I pray that you would strengthen the marriages and the homes represented in this room. Lord, that really, uh, that is the backbone of not just society, but your church and your kingdom and uh, what you're doing on planet Earth, and I pray that you would do a mighty work, not just tonight, But over these next few weeks, we share together Sunday nights. Um, Lord, there's so much that is against our marriages. There's so much that wants to divide and conquer them. And, Lord, we we choose to be intentional over these next few weeks to invest thought and reflection and change where needed um, to be what you want us to be in this area of our lives. Bless this study, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you a book title because uh, some of, specifically the six commitments that I'm about to share with you over the next uh, six weeks will take a week or two off for other things, come from a book, and I would recommend you reading it if you have time. It is called this, if you want to write down the title, What Did You Expect is the name of the book, Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. What Did You Expect, and the uh, the subtitle is Redeeming the Realities of Marriage, and it's by a man named Paul David Tripp. Um, and really what brought all this to bear of why we're going to look at this study, and we're going to unpack some scripture, and so this will be a sermon series, but some of the, at least the broad strokes of what we're looking at come from that book, is I regularly use that book in counseling. I use I have about three books I regularly use, and I, hopefully you don't take this the wrong way if I ever have been a part of, had the purpose of being a part of marriage counseling with you, Uh, or other folks you may know but i saw a funny video the other day of it was two cats and they were their owner was between them and these two cats just kept rare at each other just and the the sub caption was this is what it feels like to be a marriage counselor you got just these two people that want to just and i will tell you doing marital counseling many times to be i'm in several of them right now none none that are in this room tonight Many of them are from other churches and places. It does at times feel like an exercise in futility, I have to be honest with you, because there's so much embedded uh, acrimony or division or you know, water on the bridges, we would say, that has not been resolved. But as your pastor and as your friend tonight, what I want to try to do is to do some marriage counseling over these next couple months with a few weeks off that are, that's preventative. Because what I'd rather do is I study it here and we all learn from it and make the changes instead of, we're, you're our last hope. That's what a biblical counselor is. It's like, we've tried everything else, we'll give you one crack at it. That's kind of the vibe sometimes I get. I'd rather us not get to that point. I'd rather your marriage and mine not get there. And so this is preventative. Uh, it may also be uh, diagnostically, hey, this is an issue we have. We've got to redress this. We've got to resolve it. And if I can be, in all seriousness, if I can be of help in any informal conversation or formal counseling, I'll do my best uh, to be a help to you or point you to things. But that's the spirit of the study. And then the last thing I wanted to say in this series before we begin tonight is this. This is not me positioning myself as a marriage scholar, okay? Um, My wife's in the nursery tonight probably for a reason. She's like, this guy's going to preach on, teach on marriage? Yeah, right. Um, But I am a student of marriage, so that's the heart behind this. It's not, me, hey, I'm the scholar, scholars parade up on the stage and teach on marriage. But I think we all need to be students of just human relationship, whether it's marriage or otherwise. All right, let me give you a couple of just, these would be uh, case studies that kind of capture what happens when we don't commit to this first commitment of giving ourselves to regular confession and forgiveness. Um, And these are just a couple of uh, case studies in the book that I referenced. Cindy lay in bed awake. She was looking at Mac. It was hard for her to grasp the fact that the man she was lying next to was the same man who had swept her off her feet. As a tear coursed down her cheek, she remembered Mac's infectious smile, his sense of humor. She thought about how Mac had the ability to make the most mundane things enjoyable. She remembered getting excited at the sound of his voice. Somewhere along the way Mac had quit being Mac. He seemed perennially distracted and frustrated. He spent his time watching sports or on his computer. Going to bed was particularly hard for Cindy. She longed for just a little bit of tenderness before they both caved into the exhaustion and slept, but there was no tenderness. Mac would crumble into bed, sullen once more, mumble goodnight, give her a perfunctory kiss, and roll over into sleep. Night after night, Cindy would lie awake searching for a reason to continue. And the other case study that kind of captures where we go if we don't deal with this. Nathan stood there for a moment with a crumpled note in his hand. He had found it several weeks ago on the floor of their walk-in closet. Things had been hard since then. Anita had become emotionally infatuated with a coworker, No, this relationship had not become physical in any way. In fact, they had never been together in any way outside of work, but the note was devastating nonetheless. Uh, anyone reading it would have called it a love letter. Nathan doesn't know why he keeps it. He doesn't know why he digs it out day after day and reads it again and again and again. He just does. Anita seems remorseful and is doing everything she can to make amends. Nathan is thankful she has quit her job, but he can't get beyond the note. It stands in the middle of his life like an Everest that he knows he needs to climb but never will. It's as though the note has taken away every reason he has to continue. And that, those stories, the specifics may change, But there are a lot of marriages because they've forgotten how to or they never learned how to confess wrong that's going to always happen in marriage between two flawed people and then the ability to forgive, the ability to release that in a way that pleases and honors the Lord. Now, I said this a few months ago, and I say it again tonight in a broad sense, but also as it relates to marriage. Listen to this key statement tonight. Hopelessness is a way of seeing. It is not a state of being if you get nothing else out from because if you lose hope you're not going to be willing to confess you're not going to be willing to forgive hopelessness is a way of seeing hopelessness is not a condition I'm, i am hopeless no i'm viewing this through the lens of a hopeless and so i want to just tonight as any good counselor would do try to convince you there is hope there's enough hope for you and your spouse if there are things that need to be resolved or when these things come up in the future that you're willing to confess and you're willing to forgive. Now it's interesting here in Matthew chapter 6 that Christ is teaching his disciples how to pray. And I don't know when you hear forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, like what context do you think of? Like I tend to think of like church setting, um, maybe some other discipleship setting where you know you got the zealot Simon and the publican, and then you've got all these Jewish guys, and they had dis- And so we need to forgive those who've wronged us. Several of these disciples were married. We know Peter was. It's interesting, you could read it on your own time, and in 1 Corinthians 9, and verse 5, it, it seems to allude to the fact that several other of the early disciples were also married. And so when Christ instructed his disciples, forgive us, you know, pray this prayer, forgive us as we forgive our debtors, uh, obviously one of the implications of that would be the confession forgiveness that would have had to occur in these marriages. And so Christ here is teaching on what we should do daily. This is a lifestyle commitment of confession and forgiveness. All right, so let's talk about these two commitments tonight and where we can grow uh, to bless and please the Lord with our marriages. Number one, for a few minutes, let's talk about, first of all, a lifestyle of confession. Um, this phrase, give of us, our debts. So before we talk about, and you may say and I, oh yeah, pastor, there's a lot in our marriage that needs to be resolved with confession and forgiveness, and primarily you're thinking of you know, they need to confess, and I've got to somehow come up with the graciousness to forgive them. Before we talk about their wrong, let's talk about your wrong, the things that you've yet to adequately confess that need to be resolved. Um, some of us talk, our kids were at camp just a few weeks ago, or I guess now it's been a month or so, a month and a half. And I don't know if you've ever read when a camp will say a Christian camp will say, "Don't bring this." And uh, a youth pastor uh, friend of mine was just kind of he was kind of reflecting on it that and the list tends to grow as a camp gets older. And he said this. He said, "I wish at the back of that items not to bring list they explained the story that led to the inclusion of that specific rule." Like, what was the kid's name, and what did he light on fire? or what, You know, probably more boys than girls, if we're honest. What's behind that? What's the mistake that led to this, uh, this rule now being implemented in the camp setting? And I think we have to be honest tonight that we are often the reason that our relationship with our spouse is not what it should be. Can we at least admit that tonight? Uh, it may not be overt or intentional wrongdoing, but we're not being what we should be uh, for our spouse, and so we need to know how to process that and grow from that position for the glory and honor of God. So this would do with this would have to do with when we are the key statement tonight. No positive godly uh, change can take place in a marriage that does not begin with confession. Excuses—that's a—that's that's a non-starter. So we're going to change our marriage by making an excuse, but how often do we try to resolve things with that approach or any other relationship for that matter? Any substantive change in a marriage is going to always begin with confession. And probably it's going to happen on the part of both spouses. For the marriage to move forward, confession is the starting point. All right, let's talk about two areas, kind of obvious but significant, as it relates to confession. Number one, jot this down there in your notes. So a lifestyle of confession, we need to... Have this be the regular reputation of our way Underneath of that, live in regular confession towards your God. So before we talk about confession to one another, we need to talk about confession as it relates to God. And again, if this hits you differently at your stage of life or your relational status tonight, think about where there's a strain between you and someone else. Before I confess anything to them, I must begin by having regular confession towards my God many of the marriages and other relationships represented in this room the starting point is not horizontally it's vertical and if things are off between you and god i'm telling you and if they're off between your spouse and god one or both of you you will never be you'll have an impasse that you won't be able to overcome this this idea of being right with god and as we draw nigh to god we draw nigh to one another it it must begin with honest confession to god where we're lazy where we're selfish, where we're proud, and the list goes on and on and on. We need to own that, first of all, in the presence of God. Every relationship uh, is harmed when we seek from someone else around us any any part of God's creation, including our spouse, what ultimately we need to receive from God, whether that be self-worth or, listen to me, whether that be forgiveness. If I'm looking to my spouse to say it's okay or to compensate for where I have unconfessed sin, I am loading down that relationship in a way that will suffocate it, that will slow down what God is trying to do. And so it's unfair to my spouse, it's unfair to your spouse for you not to confess or something's off between you and God. You need his forgiveness. Go to 1 John for just a minute. Again, with this being more of a topical series, we'll be bouncing around a bit, but still build upon squarely scripture. 1 John chapter 1, and let's look, if you will, for just a minute, just a couple verses. We want to unpack them at length. But 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 6. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 6. And as you're turning there, one thing things that's amazing to me, and this may sound really crazy to you, but this happens. I mean, this happens regularly. Um, and, and I'm also sometimes this person as well. Have you ever been around somebody? This happens to me. Setting where someone will be trying to convince me they don't have an anger problem, and they're saying it in an angry fashion. Listen, I mean, buddy, I'm not, you know, and they're like getting worked up, and you're like, uh, okay, sure, yeah. And they're, I don't want to, you know, counter that with anything because you're already worked up about this. Uh, but it's amazing how we can be blind to our own issues or uh, control. I'm not a controlling spouse, and yet that wife or that husband is like control, suffocating the conversation. They're doing the very thing they're claiming that they're not guilty of. Um, bitterness, man, that's a huge one. Well, you know, I'm not bitter about this, and then they just unload with a, with a truckload of bitterness. It's, it's amazing how blind we can be to our own shortcomings. Can I tell you tonight that the deception righteousness is a wall that you cannot break through between you and your spouse. When you think you're right and you're not, when I think I'm right and I'm not, there's no way forward on that. So First John deals with this. Look if you have verse 6. And first John is, written, excuse me, written to believers. It's written that we might have assurance of salvation, but it also deals with horizontal relationships, love between us and the brethren. And obviously our wife or our husband would fit into that category. Verse six, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Did you notice that? When we're honest. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Maybe some of the suffocating weightiness, the heaviness in your marriage, is because you're not dealing with this sin. The blood has yet to cleanse that. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's the contrast to that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what I love about those verses is all the plural pronouns. Isn't that interesting? Like, we tend to focus, if I confess my sin. He's us, us, us. There's a mutual benefit and blessing. Yeah, you have to own your sin before God, and so do I, but I think there often are us relationships, the we relationships, including marriage, are hindered by the fact we're in denial of self-righteousness about something that needs confessed to God. And I will tell you this, your spouse knows if you're doing that. I mean... Our spouse knows us. They know us. They know tonight probably your spouse could, is there a list? And how long is the list of things that they know you're defensive about and you're self-righteous about and you're in denial about? And yet we act like and wish that somehow we can move on. God uh, will not allow it. So we need to be practiced in this area of confession. Now, for us men especially, and ladies, you're a bit better at this relationally typically, But some of us guys, we cannot. It's all we can do to say, I'm sorry. Like, I messed up. For those words to come out of our lips is often an unfamiliar And I would submit to you tonight lovingly, and this is God teaching and challenging me as well tonight, our lack of confession to our spouse shows we're out of practice, listen to me, toward a God we offend every day, probably every hour. And if we can't confess to our wife or our husband, probably in all honesty, it's because we're out of practice with God. How long between when I offend God and I resolve things between me and God? It ought to be frequent. It ought to be regular. There ought to be a, a rhythm of this, a lifestyle of confession that begins first in our relationship with God. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Every one of us, if we're right with God, are only that because we regularly, frequently Word. And so I would ask you tonight, would you be willing to ask God to help you change that so that you can walk in the light, as we just read in 1 John 1, with your spouse? One of the things I love about God, he loves us enough to say, let's bring all the junk into the light, let's deal with it, and now we're good. How much could happen in your marriage if your spouse would see you initiate on that front? So first of all, live in regular confession toward your God. All right, number two live in regular confession toward your spouse. So live in regular confession toward God, and that's, that's a bit maybe intangible in some ways. God also calls us to live in regular confession toward our spouse. Um, there was a neat story. This has been a little while ago, but this is a picture of two young people. Uh, their names are Mallory and Brevin Beckler, and uh, maybe you saw this story in the Daily Record a few months ago. But that they were in kindergarten, the article said, the first time they wed. They married again for real on June 12, uh, 2021. The couple said their vows, if you, kinda, if you can see in the picture, at the Historic Church of God in Moreland, where in addition to the normal wedding pictures, they also posed with Miss Unusual Umbrella, if you can see it there on the table, and Mr. Quiet Question, the letter people. Um, they represented in a Worcester Township Elementary School ceremony uniting Q and U. Those two letters of the alphabet. They also recreated the picture taken of them uh, that day in, 20, uh, in 2005. I remember the letter people wrote in the Mallory said. I learned from them. I'll never forget that Q and U are always, uh, that they always go together. The article ended by saying this, but it's unheard of that, a kin- that kindergartners who play the parts in the end-of-the-year celebration wind up together in real life, and they just reacquainted three years ago, so Q and U go together. They're next to each other in the alphabet. What about when Q and U can't get along? What about when Q wrongs you or U wrongs Q? What, what do we do when we get in that situation? It doesn't, it's not always this, is it? Oh, we just, we're meant to be and we, just, we mesh and we're just right next to each other and it's just beautiful. I don't, maybe it's just us, okay? Maybe it's just me. But uh, sometimes there's a conflict, there's tension. How do we resolve that? We do so through regular... All right, let's talk about that for just a minute. Before we talk practically... Would you go to Proverbs 28? This would be one verse that kind of captures the spirit of how we should confess or why we should confess. Proverbs 28 and verse 13. Would you turn there for a moment? Let's look at this verse, a key verse as it relates to regular confession. Why do we confess? What should we expect on the other side of confession? Proverbs 28, 13 encourages us. Look at verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Now, we'll get to the granting of mercy and granting of forgiveness in just a moment. But for the one who is wrong, or instead of confess, leads to a lack of prosperity. To confess and to forsake is to receive mercy. All right, now, I gave you these, right? These seven A's of confession. Um, let's talk about these quickly. This would be a summary of, of several things I was able to work together of those who've taught on confession that I felt like gives it to us in a bulleted point. How can we get better at confession? Because I think for some of us, um, here's what I hear a lot of, and I do this myself. We kind of confess without confessing, like I'm sure there's something or some way I didn't mean, and we get in all this vague language, and there's no direct Meaningful confession. And so these would be things to evaluate how are you doing and where can you strengthen the art, the skill of confession. All right, let's talk about these quickly. Number one, address everyone involved. Number one, if we're going to be biblically a confessor the way God wants us to, we must address everybody that's involved. No one more than that, for the record, and I think sometimes in marriage we talk to everybody except our spouse and we we try to resolve things in every way except dealing directly with the person, but anyone who has been involved, uh, we need to be willing to address them. We have not fully confessed a sin or wrongdoing until we engage all that have been affected. Sometimes our children, I think there are times that we deal with something with our child and we don't with our spouse or we deal with our spouse but not our child. Anyone that's involved in that willing to be thorough uh, in how I confess the sin. Hey, dad got mad and it impacted wife, but also junior was there or um, daughter was there. And so we have to be very thorough on that. A person who's trying to confess properly will always be thorough. If the situation happens between two people, then two are involved. If it involves three, then three have to be a part of the confession. It's that simple. And I think sometimes we take shortcuts on that. And then somebody's left out to dry that knows of the problem, and never was able to be a part of the resolution of that problem. A confessor is thorough. All right, number two. Avoid, and I gave you three words to avoid. The word if. If I've offended you. And that's a non-starter, okay? If I heard, If I was an idiot. You know, whatever the, the if is, is. I hate It just makes me cringe when I hear it, and I'm sure my wife does when I say it. Avoid if. Number two, but. But's a horrible one. I'm sorry, but. You know, and, and then we just sabotage everything that we just said before that, that lose that word. Uh, and then thirdly, maybe, that's another one, just kind of this vague, maybe I was wrong. Maybe you got hurt by this. And, and again, I'm sure there are others that we could list, but those three are the most common. Avoid the word if, the word but, and the word maybe. All three of those words basically neutralize or destroy an apology. The moment you include those in the confession, it ceases to be a biblical confession. And so we we tend to negate the apology with these kind of words and sentiments. Uh, Lose those in your vocabulary. All right, thirdly, admit specifically. So these are seven A's of confession. Address everyone involved, avoid if, but, and maybe. Thirdly, admit specifically. Um, If we just say, I'm sorry, and that's it that tends to not lead toward then the other person being able to release it from it. I am sorry for specifics, specificity, be detailed in your apology. Um, the tendency is we want to just move on instead of making sure that we move through it and we're thorough in it. Admit specifically what you have done. I know for me when I'm the wrong person, let them say it. it, it frees me to let go of it myself like that I don't, have, I don't think you know what you did to me. I don't know that you understand how that hurt me. When they're willing to specifically address it with details, to where almost I'm like, okay, that, you're overdoing it. It ought to almost be to that extent. You're, you're being so detailed that the one who is going to grant forgiveness is that that's enough. I, I've heard you. I can tell you're sorry. I release you from what has occurred. And the more specific the apology is, the more genuine and thoughtful it tends to come across. So so don't skip that step. Don't move just to a generic, I'm sorry. Uh, Make sure you include the details because then that gives the other person something to forgive you of. The details really, really matter. All right, number four, acknowledge, acknowledge the hurt. And I think this is a key one. Sometimes we leave this off. It shows great empathy and compassion when we say to them, not only am I sorry for what I did, but also how it affected you. That must have hurt you. That must have frustrated you. That must have um, uh, just really insulted or uh, injured you, how I handled that. My words must have diminished you and embarrassed you. How I responded must have angered you. Um, And what it's doing is it's acknowledging the humanity of the person. Sometimes, well, here it is. When we sin, we dehumanize people, right? We would say that pornography for example, is dehumanizing. It's, 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 it's um, stripping someone of their person, who they are. And we tend, in sin, we tend to dehumanize. What this does, instead, is it, it re-adds that back. You're a real person, and what I did hurt your heart and affected you mentally and whatever, emotionally, whatever the specific. Acknowledge the hurt. Think about how what you did affected them and verbalize that as you confess. Um, just a sidebar, I think we need to do more of that with God too. God's a person, right? He's not just a judge that we have to somehow gratify and, and show penance. We break his heart. We, we, we disappoint him. And so we need to acknowledge that hurt whenever we confess, either to God or to others. All right, a couple more under that. Next, um, accept the consequences. Um, this is a big one. I think, well, I was sincere, I confessed, I owned it, and we feel like I'm sorry is now this get-out-of-jail-free thing, where it's just let's all pretend now it didn't happen. Sin always kills, right? Sin always deadens. And I think when we do wrong to someone else, we need to be willing to say to them, I know this is going to be difficult for you to let go of. I know this may create a lack of trust between us, and I'm willing to make the sacrifices to rebuild that, or whatever the specific thing is, but be willing to acknowledge the consequences. Accept those consequences. And be the adult in the room. Don't play the victim after you just confessed what you did wrong. You know what that is? That's a narcissist. I wronged you, and then I act like the victim because you are now not willing to totally and freely and just immediately. That's working both angles. It's, it's using people instead of owning the wrong that you've done. So be willing to accept the consequences. They need to forgive you, but there still may be lingering effects that you need to be willing to wait upon to be resolved. All right, a couple more. Alter your behavior. Um, You see that in the verse we just read. He that uh, uh, covers shall not prosper whosoever confesseth. Notice and forsaketh. So it's not just my bad, I'm sorry and then you do it again. You are willing to change your behavior. We confess and we forsake. A truly repentant person is willing to do that. And so we need to manifest that. I'm going to change. I'm going to work at that. I'm going to grow. I'm sorry that I hurt you. All right. lastly, ask are all of that, excuse me, building now to the asking for forgiveness? I'm trying in this study we're going to have to not assume anything. You may say, Pastor, that's obvious. But you'd be amazed how many times we wrong each other in the marriage, and we never get to that point. We never ask. And so I've acknowledged it. I accept their consequences. Would you forgive me for what I just said to you? And be specific again. We should give the other person that we have wronged, listen to me, the dignity to release us from it when we just get real vague and kind of um, we just don't deal with it in a very specific way we don't allow them to maintain in the right sense their dignity as they process the hurt and as they respond honestly to that hurt and ultimately then release us from where we have wronged them I think that's a key missing step that many times we don't give to our spouse because we're in a hurry I don't know about you it's like survival mode are you busy like we are and so when we have tension, we're just trying to free the relationship to get back to just dealing with all that we have going on. And we skip this step where we give time for the person to say, that did hurt me, that 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 did offend me, that did disappoint me. And we give them a moment to process what we've just asked for forgiveness and then allow them in their time and way to re- to release us from where we have wronged them. And so we need that in our day. We need that in our marriages, those seven steps. I hope you'll go back through those. Those hurt to read even. Because many times I'm guilty of skipping a step or two and wondering why I um, attention. Just this kind of final thought, and we'll move to our second commitment, lifestyle commitment in marriage. If you're unwilling to confess sin, you literally you diminish your marriage to a cycle of just compounding issues. You know, we talk about peeling the onion one layer at a time, and that's often what happens in the counseling room is we just start unpacking and, oh, we didn't resolve that, and then we didn't resolve that, and that led to this, and then it led to this. Those layers, you'll never be free of those if confession is not a regular thing in your marriage. It'll just be deepening repeated patterns of misunderstandings, wrong being done, conflict being perpetuated. Confession, the future is bright. The future is free. The future is is, as glorious and grace-filled as you could ever dream possible, but it cannot happen without regular confession. So I would ask you before we move to the second point tonight, are you regularly confessing to God? Like, is there anything tonight between you and God? If there is, your marriage is never going to be what God wants it to be. Get used to confessing to God. And then secondly, where is something you've just kind of faked and and, and dodged and ducked and weaved on that you need to own between you and your spouse. All right, number two, go back to our text in Matthew 6, and notice secondly he says not only to forgive us our debts, so we have to be frequently and regularly confess. Number two, he says, as we forgive our debtors. Number two, a lifestyle of forgiveness. So our marriage ought to be sustained by not only a lifestyle of confession, The number two, a lifestyle of forgiveness. Um, If I were to ask you tonight, what is the worst thing you have ever stepped on with your bare feet? Like, think about what is that object? Um, Every list I've ever seen, isn't Lego, doesn't Lego come to your mind, especially if you've had kids or you have kids? Those are like like the worst thing, you know, especially when all of your weight comes down on it in a dark room, and you just, you know, just kind of like, just, you, you try to be sophisticated, but you're in pain as you step on that. Or something your kid left in a room that was been there for a few weeks. Or, you know, we could go through whatever you stepped in. Can I tell you tonight as it relates to the forgiveness in marriage, here's why it's hard in marriage. Because our spouse knows us better than anybody else. And they know our buttons, right? And it's very hard to not assume things about when they push those buttons, whether they do so intentionally or not. And then... You want me to release you or forgive you of that? Um, it's a difficult commitment to make. A lifestyle of forgiveness. Well, One authorized reading said this. Listen to these words. I love this. Healthy marriages are healthy because the people in those marriages find joy in canceling debts. They get excited about resolving issues. Like what gets you guys excited in your marriage? What what's debt? Uh, we, we dealt with this situation. Our kid may actually not be the child of the devil. He's going to do something for God. You know, whatever. We get excited about something. What gets you excited ought to be, hey, we had a major issue and we're free of it now. And it's a glorious thing and we can celebrate it. And in the right sense, we can share it with others and bless others with it. A healthy marriage finds great joy in canceling those debts between them. Um, and so this essential ingredient of forgiveness... If a marriage is only confession, then it's it's basically like just penance. It's just let's beat each other, let's beat ourselves up and just feel bad. At, you know, there has to be also the forgiveness that is granted. So this second discipline is equally important. Um, the problem with forgiveness is it costs. Um, I, I have found forgiveness is hard. I, I have a harder time granting forgiveness than confessing wrong. Do you, any of you relate to that? Um, I'd rather. Um, I'd rather wash someone's feet than have my own feet washed. Those kind of things where there's almost like this tension of it, it takes less, it takes more humility to let go of something someone else has done to me. I, I can own when I have wronged sometimes if my wife is fortunate that week, but granting forgiveness to others. We, we need to be frequently and faithfully willing to do so uh, for the glory and honor of God. Um, just maybe this thought. Another author said this. Listen to this, these words. Most marriages don't have any major sins, in quotes, rusted in brokenness by the daily rain of little drops of unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, even a little drop at a time, will rust out the bottom of your marriage. It'll rust out the love and the heart and the, the grace that should be between you. When you're unwilling to forgive, it's lethal. And so we have forgiveness that is a vertical commitment. We're willing to please the Lord, but then we have to be willing to extend it to others. All right, so let's talk about this for a few minutes in time we have left. Number one, live in regular forgiveness from your God. Try you probably can catch the direction of our study tonight. So live in regular forgiveness from your God. The fact is the person by god and lives in acute awareness of that is more than willing to extend that forgiveness to others one of the problems of why you're unwilling to forgive and i'm often reluctant to forgive is because i have forgotten how much god has forgiven me and we could talk about all kinds of parables and principles in scripture when you're holding back on your forgiveness to your spouse what ought to scare you and concern you is not them and even their relationship with you it's what's off between you and god how dare we Withhold to others what God has so freely given to us. It's amnesia. We're we're forgetful. We get mad. We get hurt. And we're not living in the regular forgiveness that God has given. So we need to be reminded of that and moved by that. And then willing to grant that to those. uh, Um, And so we have to be very careful to not live in what one author said is a Christless marriage. Uh, Some Christians live there without knowing what they've done. They've constructed a law-based rather than a grace-based marriage. And because of this, they're asking for the law to do what only grace can accomplish. The problem with this is that we're not just people in need of wisdom. We are also people in need of rescue. And this thing is something we need that only God can give us. And so we need to live in grace, live in what God has given us, and be willing to share that with our spouse. All right, quick verse on that. Go to Lamentations. Would you for a moment? Chapter 3. Some of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. God in the Old Testament tends to be portrayed, if we're not careful in our mind's eyes, this holy, um, vindicating, jealous God. And He is that. He places, but He's also a gracious God, a forgiving God. And let's look here, just one little section tucked into this book of Lamentations. I'm in um, Jeremiah right now. I haven't quite got to Lamentations in my reading uh, this time around. But uh, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. In the midst of all of his weeping and begging and the people of Israel rejecting his message, I love these verses. Lamentation chapter 3, and if you would please, verse 21. So before we read this, kind of this application, when we are filled with grief over our own sin and with gratitude for the amazing forgiveness that God has given to us, we will then be more than willing and find great joy in extending Uh, to our spouse or to others uh, that have wronged us. And maybe the best way to put it would be this, a lifestyle of unforgiveness is rooted in the sin of forgetfulness. We have forgotten that God has forgiven much of us. And again, this could apply in multiple ways. Who are you unwilling to forgive? It doesn't matter what they do, how lowly they grovel, we will not extend forgiveness to them. In some way, we've forgotten how much God has forgiven us. All right, Lamentations 3, look if you will in verse 21. This I recall to mind, after all these bitter, broken expressions of the prophet. This I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his... And then notice this in verse 23. They are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. You know what God's lifestyle is? We're talking about lifestyle or daily. His lifestyle is to every day be merciful and to cook up a fresh batch of fresh mercy. And why is it we wake up next to our spouse and we go through the same day again and again and again without granting forgiveness to one who is willing to confess to us? May we live in light of what God has given to us. Um, Someone I was reading said this, this question. Think of this. I don't know if you can remember when you stood at the altar with your wife or your husband-to-be. I told you last week, or I was bawling my eyes out, you know, just just like calm and collected, making sure everything is choreographed perfectly, and and I'm just the whimpering idiot off to the side. Um, But think about this scenario. When you stood there at the altar with the one you were going to give your heart and life to, someone said this, Would you marry a bride, men, if you knew at the altar... She would cheat on you every day. And then he add this little punch, Jesus did. Isn't that true? Like God granted us salvation, and he knew we would fail him every single day. And we're not willing on a daily basis to express that same forgiveness to the one he's put in our life. We must, we must, we must live in the regular forgiveness has given to us. All right, let's end then, if you will, the second point tonight. Live in regular forgiveness for your spouse. So all of that theological truth now sets the table for our final point tonight. Live in regular forgiveness toward or for your spouse. Um, someone said this the other day. Have you ever been in like the, be the baking aisle of the grocery store and, you know, they got all the usual things there. Um, and then you go to where the flour is or the sugar. Um, and somebody was saying the other day, because it's like all over the place, and they said this, with all of our sophistication, um, I am not convinced we have done all we can to find the best way to package flour or sugar. It's like, is this the, it's like you got this paper bat and it's like leaking everywhere. You know you know what I'm talking about? The, the sugar, if you will, or the love of marriage is packaged in a relationship between two very flawed people. Um, And so if that's true, then it's it's assumed we're going to have to give forgiveness. Like we can't, it's not like love is in this ideal container and we're both just perfect creatures and we're going to get along in every situation. So if that's true, then it's assumed that in that situation, forgiveness must be offered. Um, And I think often if we're not careful, we live in denial of that truth. The sweetness, the love of marriage is packaged in this less than perfect container. Um, and I observe this in counseling. I see it in our own relationship at times. Heidi and I, as I grapple with my contributions to it. But it's almost as if we live, if we're not careful, day after day with moments of misunderstanding, hurt, and anger. And again and again, we end the day with the same disappointed silence we had the last night. And we just do it over and over and over. And our list of rehearsing wrongs just gets longer and longer and longer. And I just want to ask you tonight, what if it all could be taken away? What if we could clear the slate? And I'm not saying, I think we can. God has given us the the ability to release things. And maybe we get excited about that. With all it's going to cost us, the payoff is worth the investment. Now, we have to be honest, Is our pride that creates this reluctance to grant more than ask for forgiveness we struggle with that Um, why is it we struggle to forgive i i've asked myself that why is it so hard to forgive why just in any situation why do i struggle so much when i know what scripture says and i know what god has done for me can i give you just a few thoughts that might help you why you struggle to forgive your spouse whether they have owned it or not but you're not willing to extend that to them and be willing to if they would come to you with that to even initiate that reconciliation. Here are a few things about why we don't forgive our debtors. I think, first of all, it's power. We often use the debt that our spouse owes us to to exert power. Um, And that can be in other relationships too. But why we don't let go of debt, our debtors, we don't forgive them is because it's it's something we can hold over them. Uh, It's a power play. Number two, it's part of our identity. You owe me, and that's who I am. I'm a victim. I'm the one taking the blows for this family because you're being selfish or you're being proud, and it's it's who we are. And if that ever was gone, who am I now in the marriage? Who am I now in the family? So debt is power. It's identity. Uh, Thirdly, it's entitlement. Because you owe me, I now have this out. I have a right for this side gig or this other relationship or this sidebar uh, distraction in the, in the marriage. And so it's, it, it gives us something that now we're entitled to. You've wronged me, so I deserve X, y. A couple more that I observed. Fourthly, it's weaponry. We use it as a weapon. Um, we get in an argument, right? Let's be honest. And there's always that thing we can bring up. It's right there, it's razor sharp, it's honed and ready, and when we need to bring them to their knees or shut down the conversation, I can always at least bring that one thing up that he or she still feels guilty about. And so we hold that over them for that reason. And then lastly, and this is the one I, 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 I hate to say it, but it's true, debt puts us in the position of God. If somebody owes me and they've wronged me and I'm not willing to grant them forgiveness, I can almost hold that over them in a godlike way. You you have to earn my forgiveness. And it's, again, a power. Often, I think, if we're honest, those are some of, not all of, but some of the reasons we're not willing to forgive our debtors. And the whole time our marriage suffers, we miss out on much of what God wants and intends for our marriage. May we be willing to forgive our debtors. All right, a couple verses, and then we'll look at a couple of final points that you see there on how we can get better at forgiving. First uh, Corinthians 13. Would you go there for a moment? First Corinthians 13. These would be verses from which these final principles are derived. First Corinthians 15, I'm sorry, 13, and verse number five. Chapter of love, and there's a lot in here we may draw from this chapter later in our series, but specifically, look if you will First Corinthians 13 and verse number five, "Doth not this charity, this godly love. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. And then notice this phrase, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. All right, and we'll apply that in just a minute. And then the last verse is Ephesians chapter 4. Would you go there further toward the back of the New Testament? Ephesians chapter 4, and look if you will at verse 32. Ephesians chapter 4. In verse thirty-two, and earlier in this chapter, he talks about being angry and sinning. Not let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And there's a lot in this that would he talks about earlier speaking truth with your neighbor, who's a closer neighbor than our spouse. So, I think there's a lot in this context that would have. But if you will, just verse thirty-two, and be kind, Ephesians four thirty-two. One to another, tender-hearted. Notice this next phrase: forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. All right, so let's talk about these principles of how we can get better at um, forgiveness. Number one, so these would be four promises of forgiveness. So when we say to someone, I forgive you, we need to say with it, I forgive you, and I promise to do or not to do. And these are the things that will help our forgiveness be more robust and effective. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. So whatever the the, the point of contention is, I will not dwell upon emotionally, mentally, I'm going to let go of this on it. We're not going to stew on it. Um, we will forgive. I don't know that we can forget, but we can choose to not remember. Um, Corrie ten Boom, who had a few things she could remember in her time of incarceration in the Nazi concentration camps, was once recorded in a conversation with one of her colleagues. She was asked if she remembered the transgression from years prior. So it had nothing to do with the concentration camps, but this friend of hers had wronged her and she said do you remember how i wronged you and Cory Boom responded by saying this i distinctly remember forgetting it i distinctly remember forgetting it is there that kind of distinction in our minds saying to forget it don't think on it don't dwell on it i'm not saying your brain and heart won't go there but just say eh, and redirect redirect we do it with toddlers so we can do it with our own minds and hearts let's let's look at another thing let's focus on something else I will not dwell on uh, this incident. And here's the key. If you do that, it's going to help you with these next few. Because if I'm not dwelling on it, then I'm not going to slip up in these other areas. All right, number two, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. So I forgive you, and I promise I will not dwell on it. Number two, I will not bring this incident up and use it against you. Um, when we haven't it, forgiven, we store up this transgression, and, man, we wait for just the right moment just to pull the... Just watch it explode again and just smile as it happens. Um, we, we, we We refuse to do that. We're not going to bring it... Man, but maybe not um, so I will not bring this incident up and use it against uh, you that's the promise we have to make um, the tendency is we want to leverage it we want to use it as an advantage and here's really what that is it's just manipulation we have to own that we have to admit that and let go of that uh, for the glory and honor of God all right number three I will not talk to others about this incident so I will not dwell on it. I'll not bring it up again and use it against you. Thirdly, I will not talk to others about this. Um, that includes mama, daddy, uh, sibling, coworker, someone who's not immediately in relation to the home. I will not talk about this to others. Um, that is huge um, because then perpetuated. They don't keep it going. It takes the life out of it. I hate gossip. I know God does more than I do. And uh, whatever you do outside of those who immediately have been impacted by it is gossip. I will not talk about this. Honey, I forgive you, and it's it. No one else is going to hear of this. This is between us. I release you. I I let it go. That's a key promise to make as you forgive. All right, and then fourthly and lastly, I will not allow this incident to stand between us or to hinder our personal relationship and I guess the best that's a tough one because we tend to gravitate toward passive aggressiveness right can we own that like sometimes we get like high schoolers the the looks the vibes that we give off yeah I forgave you but we're not really good and now this is a point of contention between us will never be the same that kind of a mindset versus full reconciliation Uh, and this is often the most difficult part because it requires something Uh, similar to the levels of confession where we go fully into forgiveness we tend to forgive partially I'll forgive you but it's never gonna be the same when's the last time you had wrong between you and you resolved it so well that your relationship listen to me was better after the wrong that was done I think there's a cycle to marriage and actually the wrong that we do to one another is the means to drawing closer to each other and growing and changing And a lot of times, instead, we're worse off. We have now this icy coolness. It's not really said, but it's just felt. That is not forgiveness. When he says, I'm building a place for you in my kingdom, I'm I'm giving you room, I'm giving you full access, his forgiveness is full and complete, and there's no bars uh, held on the forgiveness he grants to us. So we need that uh, to be a part of our relationship with our spouse. Listen, you can choose to carry the list. You can choose to punish the other person. You can choose to be disappointed and keep your distance, or you can lean into them uh, in that moment of forgiveness. It takes a lot to confess, a lot of humility. We ought to meet them halfway. We ought to be there and together team up to address the wrong uh, that has been done. Uh, Can I give you a a last statement on this, and then we'll bring this to conclusion, but under the, the umbrella of forgiveness, this statement, would you jot this down? Forgiveness is the kind of marriage everyone wants. The harvest of forgiveness, if you'll plant the seed with all that it costs you to plant the seed of confession and forgiveness, the harvest of forgiveness is the kind of marriage every everyone wants. What you want out of marriage, and more importantly what God wants out of marriage, is on the other side of what we just talked about. And you'll never get it until you do it God's way. Because we're imperfect, and we need confession, and we need forgiveness. And I'll say this, and then we'll get to the conclusion. We tend to, when our spouse is wrong, to focus on what God's word has to say about the law. They wronged me. This is wrong. Can I remind you gently but firmly, heart, on where God's word says to be forgiving? Doesn't the same Bible that says you did wrong or the spouse did wrong also says we're to be forgiving each other? We just read Ephesians four thirty-two: Be ye kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. So, don't be selective with the Bible just about their wrong. Let it speak to where you have a reluctance uh, to forgiveness. All right, go back to Matthew 6, and let's end in verse 14 and 15. Matthew chapter 6, and if you would please, verse 14 and 15. The other day I saw this picture. Some of us younger guys will be offended by this, but on the back of a Jeep, this was on the wheel cover. This vehicle is equipped with millennial anti-theft device, and it has the gear pattern. Remember learning how to drive a stick shift? I'm like probably the last generation. Like I remember it literally destroying my dad's clutch in a Ford Topaz trying to get that dumb thing out of the, out of the driveway. You know, just, you know, just stalling it and all that goes with that. Kids nowadays, they, they, you know, it's basically good luck, you know, getting them to jump in one. I don't know if you can find a stick shift much anymore, but anyway, I thought that was a hilarious picture of sometimes how marriage is. Isn't marriage sometimes grinding the gears? What do we do when that happens? When we we do get things off a bit, we need this forgiveness, we need this confession. All right, look here in Matthew 6 in verse 14. So he goes on to end the prayer and then he says, (coughs) excuse me, he says this in verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But, If ye forgive not men their trespasses, and ladies, you're included in that, just for the record. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Ultimately, God will not let us get away with dodging on this. And there's no one that's going to wrong us more, or that we're going to wrong more probably than our spouse. And God says, the proportion in which I grant forgiveness and cleansing to you will be impacted by your willingness to forgive others. Um, I was reading this the other day, an author said this, we settle for quick situational solutions that don't get to the heart of the matter. And that's what we're doing in our marriages. What's the quick fix? What's the, are we good? Let's move on. And we never deal with the heart matter. And that's why there's not a connection on a heart level, oftentimes in our marriage uh, with the spouse that God has given us. There's only one way for your marriage to be what God had designed it to be enabled it to be confession and forgiveness. And until we regularly commit to this daily pattern of humble confession, humble willingness to forgive, we'll never reach the potential that God has for us. Here's the question we're done. Will you and your spouse finally say we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and a regular lifestyle of forgiveness? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its...